I should have made it louder. My friend Daryl Stetler came up with that, and uh, using some of his material to move us in the direction of discipleship. You know, having a good start is very important. Um, I, I grew up in a family that was always interested in cars and motorcycles and mechanical things, and uh, and so these kinds of things really pique my interest. What's on the screen is known, at, known as a top fuel dragster. And they are the quickest accelerating racing cars in the world. Um, the fastest of competitors reach speeds of 335 miles per hour in the space of about 3.6 seconds. So... In about, in less than four seconds, they go from the starting line a thousand feet down the track, and by the time they reach the end, in about three and a half seconds, they're going over 300 miles an hour. The force that the uh, driver in the cockpit feels is similar to the same forces that an astronaut feels when they are taking off in the, uh, in the space shuttle or the rocket. It's incredible, incredible. A top fuel dragster accelerates from a standstill to 100 miles per hour in less than one second. It's amazing. Now, if a car, if they are racing, if there are two, they're racing each other, the car that is first off the line is the car that has the biggest advantage and often, even if the other car has a faster top speed, it won't make any difference if it's not the first one to leave the starting line. Because they go so quickly that the one that leaves first gets so far ahead that the other one will not have a chance to make up the lost ground. If you've ever seen such a thing... Uh, a, a drag racer, whether a legal or an illegal version, sometimes you know that most all drag racers spin their wheels, just kind of like what you saw a minute ago, before they go down the track. Now, to some of us, that may seem just like showboating, and I'll have to be honest, there are some times when it's tempting, if you have a fast car, to just burn the rubber a little bit. Amen. Thank you for that. But when it's a drag racer, there's a very specific reason why they do the burnout. They're not just showing off. They're not just showboating. But when these cars that are getting ready to go down the track and reach speeds of over 300 miles an hour, they sit there and the first thing they do is to do a burnout. They, what they are doing is uh, they're accomplishing about three or four different things. One, they're cleaning the tires of any debris that might be stuck. Another thing they're doing is heating up the tires. And while they're heating up the tires, they're laying down a patch of rubber on the pavement, on the asphalt. And it's sticky and it gives them extra traction. In fact, if the car does a burnout and then sits there too long, there's so much rubber laid down on the track and the, the tires get so hot that they'll end up sticking to the pavement. 
But what all of this accomplishes is it helps them to have a good start, kind of like a slingshot. When it takes off, it's got plenty of power and plenty of momentum. But friends, no matter how much power and uh, uh, no matter what the top speed is, it will not be as effective as it could be if they don't have a good start. Now, some Christians start their walk with Christ explosively, but fizzle. Many of you, I'm sure, know what it's like to have a car that maybe, uh, maybe you're having a fuel injector problem or a, or a problem with a clogged fuel filter or something like that, and, and it, won't, uh, uh, it, it won't take its gas right, and as you're trying to push the pedal down and the car just, you know what that's like. You can't get going. Some Christians have a start like that. What needs to happen, friends, is a good start with the power of God behind us and then a consistent application of that power until we cross the finish line. Friends, this is the purpose of discipleship. It's wonderful to get people to the altar and get them saved. Thank God for that. Thank God to see people who seem to be really moved. But, you know, I've seen people seek God and, and uh, ask Him for salvation. And some of them I've seen shed tears. And it seemed that they got off to a good start, but it wasn't long until they fizzled. I think there's a number of reasons why that happens. But I think one of the reasons that happens is... We live in a day and a, a culture when discipleship is not as natural and as intuitive as it used to be. Some of you grew up in an age when discipleship happened more easily and more naturally. But friends, we live in a day and an age when discipleship, if it happens, it must happen intentionally and on purpose. This is why we are moving in the direction of discipleship. And I, I understand by and large we might, be, we might be preaching to the choir this morning, and that's okay. Uh, but I want you to take uh, what the Lord offers us through His Word and through His Spirit and uh, apply it to your own hearts, and then perhaps it can be something that you can share with someone else. But the first thing that we need to know as we begin discipleship is uh, some of the facts about salvation. And very simply put, to ask this question, what happens to us in salvation? When I got saved, when you got saved, what happened to me? Some people think that it is a, a matter of a transaction uh, that takes place in heaven uh, where we are forgiven of our sins and our ticket to heaven is punched and, and then they seem to think they can go their own way and live their own life and then they'll just get to see God in heaven. They get to go to heaven when they die. Some people think of it as transactional. Some people think of it as, as organizational. Uh, it's something about uh, maybe joining a church, being baptized, or signing a church membership card, or becoming a part of an organization. And, and all of those things are good, but none of those will make you a Christian. 
Some people think of Christianity as uh, almost as an ethnicity. Now, this is not the case any longer in our country, but there was a time that I can remember in my own life, and I remember, uh, I'm sure you all can remember as well, that many people used to think simply because they were American that that had something to do with being a Christian. Some people think of it as turning over a new leaf, becoming a better person. Those things may be included, they may be involved, but friends, salvation is much more than that. It is also a spiritual reality. It's something that takes place in, in, uh, in our hearts and in our lives, and we use phrases like getting saved or, or being born again or I got right with God. But what exactly happens when we get saved? How many of you, this feels like you're going back to kindergarten? Okay, good, good, you're on board. Well, friends, the first thing that happens when we come to Jesus and we get saved is that we are forgiven of our sins. Thank God. We are forgiven of our sins. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know the reason why salvation doesn't work for some people? Say, oh, pastor, salvation would work for everybody. Well, it it ought to, but it doesn't work for some people. And one of the reasons that it doesn't work for some people is that they never really knew they needed to be saved in the first place. And before people can really be found, they need to know that they're lost. People can't be found unless they're lost. People can't be saved unless they know they need to be saved. And the average person in the world today thinks that they're a pretty good person. In fact, the Scripture tells us that all men will proclaim their own goodness. And friends, before we can truly be saved, we need to be lost. People need to experience a real conviction of their sins. And more than just a head knowledge, more than just a, a, an intellectual assent, oh yeah, sure, I've done things that were wrong, but we need to have the convicting power of the Holy Spirit applied to our hearts and lives. We could take a moment this morning to review the Ten Commandments. Some people say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. I do, I do good things. You know, I, I, I work and I support my family and I pay my bills and pay my taxes. And... But friends, we review the Ten Commandments and then we review the Sermon on the Mount and see uh, what Jesus, how Jesus opened up the law to us. And most people will realize that in some form or another, they have violated the Ten Commandments. They violated God's law. But what must take place beyond that intellectual assent is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I believe you say, well, how does that happen? Friends, I believe that's one of the reasons the prayers of the church are so crucial for those that are lost. Yes, God works, and yes, God works in people's lives, but very rarely, I, I think almost exclusively behind nearly everybody that is saved, nearly everybody that comes to the Lord, somewhere behind them you will find someone who either has prayed or is praying for them. And I believe it's through the prayers of the church that God's Spirit goes to work in people's lives to awaken their conscience, to help them understand their need for salvation. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, uh, actually 
1 John covers both aspects of sin in our lives. It uh, involves the aspect of sin, that nature of sin that we were born with. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's that nature that we are born with. And then verse 10, I believe it is, that says if we say we have not sinned, then, we are, then the truth is not in us. Everybody both is born with the nature of sin and then is eventually guilty and accountable before God of those acts of sin. But thank God for 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not too long ago, we just came through the Passion Week where we celebrated Good Friday and then the resurrection on Easter. Some of the songs that we like to sing roll through my mind every once in a while. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We just sang it a little while ago. He took my sins away. He took my sins away and keeps me singing every day. Oh, I'm so glad. He took my sins away. Friends, when we come to God for salvation, our hearts are washed. We are forgiven of our sins, and the slate is wiped clean. Not only were we forgiven of our sins, but we were indwelt with God's Holy Spirit. Indwelt with God's Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Another name for this is the word regeneration. We call it being born again, but we are born, the way we are born again or regenerated is because of the fact that God's Spirit quickens us. God's Spirit comes to dwell within us, and we have new life. You see, connection with God, the Holy Spirit, is the source of life. He comes to live within us and to empower us. So you see, friends, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the source of spiritual life. You have the stamp of God's ownership upon you. You have the power to live the new life. And you also have God's Spirit as a deposit, which is a guarantee for all of the rest that God has promised to do for those people who are called by His name. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 gives us these words, And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a guarantee. How many of you have ever bought a house before? Any of you bought a house? Some of you have. When you bought your house, some of you, yeah, John and Pam, they, you've bought m- multiple, multiple times. Um, I remember when we bought a house. We tried to buy a house for two or three years before it ever worked out that we were actually able to, to complete a contract and purchase a house. But when you are going to buy a house, one of the very first things you do, not this is not the down payment, but one of the very first things you do is you make an offer through your, usually through a real estate agent, and accompanying your offer is earnest money. That earnest money is like a guarantee saying 
that you are, it's indicating to the seller of the house that you are serious about your offer, that you, you really intend. So you send money along with it to let them know that you intend to follow through. Now that is exactly what God's Spirit is for the Christian. It is the seal of His acceptance, of His approval, but it is also the guarantee to us that everything else that God has promised, He will provide, He will give. And then the Apostle Paul writes also in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. You see, friends, a lot of us look at Romans chapter 8, and especially in uh, the Wesleyan holiness tradition that we are a part of, we connect these verses in the idea of the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. We connect that with entire sanctification or, or a second blessing, and, and there's certainly some involvement with that. But we need to understand that God's Spirit comes to dwell within our hearts at the moment of the new birth. When we are saved, God's Spirit comes. Romans 8 verse 9 Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And so, friends, everyone that has been born again, has received salvation, has the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Praise His name. But then also, not only did we have our sins forgiven, and we were indwelt with God's Spirit, but we were also adopted into God's family. Adopted into God's family. There is a mindset in the culture today where people want to believe that we all are part, we're all God's children. We're all God's children. And there is, I suppose, an aspect of that that is true. By creation, we are all God's children. But friends, not, our, our birth into this world uh, is not enough to uh, have us considered a part of God's family just because we were created by Him. And as I've mentioned to you before, some have said the, why we need to, the reason we need to be born again is because we weren't born right the first time. We need regeneration. And friends, when we are saved, we are adopted into God's family. I think adoption is, is one of the most beautiful things, a beautiful picture, an example of what happens in salvation. I remember uh, a, a gentleman and his wife that was on the staff at God's Bible School and College, the Winklers. My wife will probably remember, brother and sister Winkler. They had uh, foster children. Part, a big part of their ministry was in fostering children. And, and they had, I don't, the last time I knew, they had over, at, over 60 foster children coming in and out through their home at different times. One little boy that they had in their home as a foster child, obviously not accustomed to seeing a table spread full of food. Uh, the first time he came to their table for a meal, he began grabbing everything he saw as soon as he, as he sat down and began trying to stuff his face and eat as quickly as he could. He was just not accustomed to having plenty to eat. Brother Winkler said they had to take action and begin to portion out proper helpings to the, to the little boy until he finally realized that he could pull up to the table and relax and enjoy the, all that he could eat when he understood there was plenty at his father's table. 
Another instance that Brother Winkler told about was a brother and a sister that they had in their home, small children. And they began calling brother and sister Winkler, mommy and daddy. And when their biological mother, their birth mother, found out about it, she was angry. She was upset and she basically told them, they're not your mommy and daddy. Don't you call them mommy and daddy. Sometime later, the little boy approached Brother Winkler to ask for something and called him daddy. And the sister, overhearing what was taking place, began to reprimand him and, and uh, said, no, you're not supposed to call him daddy. And the little boy said, yes, I know, but when I want something real bad, I always call him daddy. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Another one of the wonderful aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and being indwelt with God's Spirit is not only do we know on the authority of God's Word that we have been adopted into God's family, but there are times when God's Spirit comes close and just whispers in our ear and gives us that assurance. I'm so glad to be a part of a church that believes in the doctrine of assurance. You know, there was a time prior to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation when people believed you couldn't really know whether or not you were saved. You just had to do the best you could. In fact, John Wesley himself even struggled throughout all of his time uh, prior to having his heartwarming experience. He struggled doing good works. He, 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 along with his brother, and I believe the friend, started the Holy Club when they were at Oxford. And uh, their effort was simply to be as holy as they could. They wanted to know that they were accepted with God, but they were going about it through their efforts and through their works. And friends, if you've ever read about the things that they did and their habitual practices, I can guarantee you they'll put every single one of us to shame in their use of spiritual disciplines and piety. However, that time came when he was sailing on the ship and coming across to America to be a missionary to the, to the Native Americans here. And uh, as they were going through a storm, he watched that group of people, the Moravians, that were uh, in the same boat as he was in the same storm. And Wesley, according to his testimony, was frightened and afraid for his life. But as he observed these people, even the children, he said, were calm. And they were singing hymns because they had an assurance in their heart. What was it? John Wesley had been trying to earn by works his salvation, his knowledge of, uh, and assurance of salvation. And he wrote one place in his journal, I have come to America to help convert and save the heathen, but who, oh, who will save me? Then we know he had that Aldersgate, uh, at Aldersgate Street, that heartwarming experience when the one who was leading that small group, reading from Martin Luther's preference to the book of Romans about how the just shall live by faith. 
And he came to an understanding that it wasn't in all all of the efforts and all of the works and all of the striving to be good enough and to earn God's salvation, but simply having faith, reach out and trust God. And he said his heart was strangely warmed as God gave him the assurance of salvation. Thank God that we can be adopted into his family and we can know, we can know Maybe some of you have struggled with assurance. And I certainly, I suppose a lot of us probably have struggled more with assurance for uh, holiness and entire sanctification than, than with salvation. But friends, we need to understand it is simply by faith and by trust. And what assurance is, you, you can't really describe it or explain it, but it is simply an inner awareness an inner knowledge that it is so. Amen. Well, friends, we can have our sins forgiven when we're saved. That's something that happens. Our sins are forgiven. We are indwelt by God's Spirit and born again. We are adopted into God's family. And the final thing, there's probably more aspects that we could cover, but the final thing that I want to mention to you this morning is that you have committed your allegiance to a new king, King Jesus. And friends, if this doesn't take place in the moment of salvation, then you haven't really been saved. Allegiance to King Jesus. In John chapter 11, verse 27, we read these words. Of Martha to Jesus. She said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And friends, it is crucial when we come to God for salvation that we recognize Christ as King and understand that He becomes the new boss the ruler, the authority in our lives. You see, the idea of Christ being the Messiah or uh, Jesus being the Messiah or the Christ is that He is the anointed King from God. The idea is this. It is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, It is to believe that He came to rule and to reign. You see, in Jesus' day, when he lived and walked on this earth, no one who heard him claim to be the Messiah would have ever concluded that this was something they could believe and then go about their lives as if nothing was different. They understood that proclaiming Christ as king, proclaiming Jesus as as Christ or as the Messiah, they understood that meant a complete reorientation of their lives and of their loyalties. Somehow or another, we live in a culture where it is acceptable to accept Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily as Lord. But friends, the idea that Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord, the Bible knows nothing about that. And I'm not talking about anything that is a distinction between conversion and entire sanctification. I'm not talking about a second work of grace. I'm talking about what happens at the moment we are saved. When we come to God for salvation, we make Him Lord of our lives. We say He is the boss. 
You see, friends, his power and authority is absolute. He doesn't have to ask anyone's permission or check with anyone if his will is okay with them or not. He is the king. He is the authority. And he has come to establish a kingdom over darkness and selfishness and death and sin. He has faced down all of the powers that were opposed to him and conquered them through his cross. This is what he meant when he cried from the cross, it is finished. In other words, the work is done. The work that he came to accomplish is complete. And he is now the rightful ruler over all things from the large scale things like nations, the, the, the kingdoms and nations of this world, down to the smallest details of my heart and life and your heart and life. Like what you do with your leisure time. Everything from the big things to the little things. That's what it means to believe in Jesus as Messiah. In fact, that's what it means to place our faith in Him. A lot of people say they have faith in their doctor, but then don't do the things that their doctors recommend. If you have faith in your doctor, if you trust your doctor, you will be doing the things that your doctor recommends. Otherwise, you don't really have faith in your doctor, right? No matter what words come out of your mouth, no matter what words you say, you demonstrate the fact that you trust your doctor by doing the things that he tells you to do. And friends, this is the same with our relationship with God through Jesus Christ by making him Lord and King of our lives. We, we know we accept him by faith. It is by faith that we are saved. But we demonstrate that faith through allegiance and trust. In other words, that is believing what God says enough to do what God requires it means we don't just it's not just lip service and then we go our own way and do our own thing and say well Lord I'm not sure you know God begins to deal with some tricky areas of our lives have you ever had God deal with tricky areas of your life in other words those areas that you kind of like to keep your hands on the steering wheel I saw somebody the other day driving down the road. I hadn't seen it in a long time, but just maybe it was just yesterday. They had big on the front of their, of their bumper, God is my co-pilot. You know what they need to do? They need to scoot over and let God be in the driver's seat. That's what it means to really be saved and be a Christian. You commit your allegiance to a new king. And those friends who receive Christ by faith commit themselves to follow him as their Lord, as their king, as their ruler. And that is what it means to be a recipient of the good news, the gospel. The gospel. What is good news? Did you ever hear, you've heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the availability of God's kingdom. Did you ever hear of the gospel of Caesar Augustus? The gospel, the gospel, incidentally, the gospel of Augustus is a real thing. It took place just a few decades before Jesus was born. Uh, you see, Augustus was not originally known as Augustus. He was known as Octavian. 
and Julius Caesar was assassinated, his supposed successor, Octavian, ended up in a civil war against Mark Antony. And if you remember any of your history about this, this period of time in history, you remember Mark Antony's uh, affair with Cleopatra and all of that took place. And, and if you study a map of the region during that time, you will see that it was split almost in two. And the eastern part of the Roman Empire was largely under the control of Mark Antony and Cleopatra and the western part that included uh, most of Italy and Rome was under the control of Octavian. And this was a period of time that was, that was beset with civil wars and unrest and, and the people of Rome, the Roman citizens, were, were very uh, agitated and uncomfortable because they never knew what was going to happen next. At certain times, Mark Antony and his side would assert control and dominance and other times Octavian and his army would, would come along. And eventually it, it was obvious somebody had to figure out who was really going to be in charge? Who was really going to be running the show? Finally, Octavian defeated Antony at the Battle of Actium, and then Octavian had to go around uh, basically mopping up all of the unfinished business uh, that had to do with establishing his control over the whole of the Roman Empire. And it was several years before he was actually able to return to Rome as emperor. But long before he ever came back to Rome as emperor, word got back to Rome. And here's the point, the essence of the news that came back to Rome. And it is this, that something has happened as a result of which the world is a different place. Octavian is going to be in charge, and you need to decide where your allegiance lies, because he's coming back to Rome, and when he gets here, you had better be ready and know where your allegiance lies. And friends, anyone living in Rome between the victory of Octavian and when he returned four years later would realize they had to get their houses in order. They had to recognize that they had a new allegiance to a new king. And in fact, word was sent, they call it the Pax Romana, where uh, Caesar, uh, or rather Octavian, proclaimed his, himself as Caesar Augustus and ushered in a new age of peace for the Roman Empire. And everybody, it was what everybody that had been so used to the upheaval of civil war and, and, uh, and unrest looked forward to this good news that was being declared by Caesar Augustus. Friends, when Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom, the message about Jesus, which is good news, the gospel, essentially means this, something has happened and the world is a different place. You see, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the world will never be the same again. And something will happen later where this work is completed, and that is Jesus' return to rule and reign, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And friends, we now live in that space between, that space between when Christ conquered sin and death and the time when he will return to set up his kingdom 
And now is the time to decide where our allegiance lies. Who will our king be? Friends, when we are saved, we experience salvation. We are removed from the kingdom of darkness and selfishness and sin. Our sins are all forgiven. They're washed away. And we are brought into a kingdom of righteousness and peace and love. The new king, Jesus, has conquered, and he will return one day. And friends, he has put us in charge of notifying everyone of the fact that he will return, that he has conquered and he will return. And friends, this is what the journey of discipleship is all about. It is about getting people to accept this king and then preparing them for his return, for living in allegiance to him. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of salvation, that we can know our sins are forgiven, we can know that we are indwelt by your Spirit, that you are living and ruling and reigning within our hearts. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be faithful followers, people who are organizing our lives to be more and more like Jesus. Would you help us then to bring people into this reality, to introduce them to you, to the reality of your kingdom, that then they would become disciples. Help each one of us not just to be disciples ourselves, but to be disciple makers. And for what you do, we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.